Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. High Reliability is the healthcare FM podcast that discusses the issues, challenges, and opportunities within the facilities management function. FM professionals keep America's hospitals safe, secure, and functioning. Goslin Martin's Associates is a solution provider to the healthcare industry, providing education, staffing, and assessments for hospital facilities management. We work with hospitals and systems across the United States, and my name is Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Steve Sponbrook, a founding partner of MSL Healthcare Partners. Steve has over 28 years of national consulting experience in the environment of care and facilities management. Steve is a prominent figure on the national level, and he is a frequent speaker in the field of healthcare safety, regulatory compliance, and performance improvement. Steve serves as a faculty member for the American Society for Healthcare Engineering, teaching both the Healthcare Construction Certificate and Environment of Care courses. Steve's been an active faculty member since 2004, and he has participated in seminar development for Purdue University, the Association of Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, and the Joint Commission. Steve was formerly Director of Facilities Consulting for Premier. Steve? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Peter. It's good to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours as well in this uh, in this time of everything being distance. As we tape this, it is Tuesday, April 21st, and obviously we are still within the struggle and the hold of the COVID-19 pandemic. Steve, how, you know, just on the personal level, how has COVID-19 impacted MSL Healthcare Partners, and what are you guys up to these days? Well, that's a great question. It's actually, it's had a profound impact on us from a business perspective. Um, not necessarily negative, but it's been interesting. We, we, If you look at our website and you get to know our team, and, and a lot of people in our industry already know most of those folks anyway because of their involvement in ASHI and throughout their careers, but most of our folks are in that high-risk category. I mean, we've got a ton of experience on our team, and with experience, typically comes age, unfortunately. So we we actually were a little bit more proactive, um, started thinking about, because, you know, our job and our products typically require travel. And so we, uh, back about the first week of March, started thinking about, it, does it make sense for us to continue to travel the way we're traveling? And then the second week of March, when things really started to get more, um, apparent and, and the president did the Oval Office um, speech. I think it was a Wednesday evening. I pretty much made up my mind it was time to pull the plug, but at that point it was really crystal clear and we did, had everybody out doing surveys and things that week. We decided just when they got home Thursday we were going to travel again until things seemed to clear up. And of course, so we're in that state now. Um, but on positive side, you know, what it's done is it's freed up a lot of time for us to be able to do things to help with this particular response. And so, you know, we've had clients calling us for a variety of reasons, and we've been able to be very, very, um, you know, responsive to that. We've also spent a lot of time thinking about things that we've wanted to do for years to to help our clients, to help our business, to help other businesses and business partners, and then generally help the industry. And, you know, just 
honestly had not had the time because we've been so busy doing other stuff. And it's like, wow. Um, you know, it's been, uh, it's, it's funny. I hate to say this because we're in the middle of this tragic pandemic and it's uh, truly is a tragedy and so many people are suffering. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not blind to that, but it's been an exciting few weeks for us because there are things that we know we want to do, can do, should do, hadn't had the time to do. And now we're getting the opportunity to do it. So, uh, you know, popping out of bed every morning, coming into my office has been, it's been fun. So, uh, that being said, I'm, I'm ready. I actually had a dream about a Hampton Inn night before last. That's telling me it's time to get back out there. I don't know what that's telling me exactly, but that was, that was eye opening. It was a pleasant dream about Hampton Inn. So were you eating the free breakfast? Uh, yeah, you know, actually I was, I was eating the breakfast and, um, you know, one of the, I think what started, it was the, one of the Hampton Inns that I spent a lot of time in, in Florida, the manager called and just like, uh, Hey Steve, when do you think you might be back? <laughs> um, and I was like, gee, I wish I knew Alina. Um, but it, it was, uh, yeah, interesting times, but it's, you know, it's been, uh, I would have, I was telling our client or our staff when we, um, made the announcement that, you know, we did the strategic plan for MSL to, over the summer for the next five years. This did not make the SWOT analysis, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> right, right, did right. not make it. Absolutely. And, um, but you know, it's, it is what it is and we're, we're making the best of it. You know, along those lines, Steve, we had what the SARS outbreak was in 02, H1N1 was 09, Ebola 2014, certainly um certainly they were outbreaks but were there any actions that could have been taken for what's experienced now could you ever have comprehended this level you know that's a great question too um in terms of comprehension i you know you want to think that you you can foresee the future and you can put yourself into a position and understand what it's going to be like. But until you've actually been there, I think it's an, an impossible thing to truly appreciate. Um, and this certainly is one of those, we, you know, we've talked about pandemics forever. Um, so part of me is really frustrated because I think we should have been, we, the healthcare industry, not necessarily just facilities, but we should have been better prepared. Um, we were prepared. But I don't, you know, like I said, I didn't make the SWOT analysis 20 years ago, literally, uh, I, I could not comprehend a situation where we would fully ever fully evacuate a hospital. Why would we do that? We build them like fortresses because of life safety code requirements. We've got redundant utility systems. We have all these things, you know, and then Katrina happened and I'm like, wow, okay, you know what? There are times when we may actually have to fully evacuate a hospital. And, and at that point, we got a little bit better about evacuation plans. I mean, truthfully, until then, every hospital that I surveyed in the country, their evacuation plan was, well, when we have to evacuate the hospital, we're going to go to the local high school or we're going to go to the, you know, the National Guard Armory across the street or whatever. Totally, it just would have never worked out. I mean, Katrina proved that to us. Um, Katrina also showed us that these kind of regional-based disasters are, are likely to happen. And so, but even then, 
we're thinking, okay, well, worst case scenario is there's a section of the country or a section of the world that we're not going to be able to function normally, but there's going to be this other larger section of the country or the world that can not only function normally, but help support that part of the country that's in disaster. And, you know, unfortunately, what this event has shown us is that what we've been talking about since 2008, I guess, from an emergency management perspective and, and understanding your own ability to for um, self-reliance and that sort of thing uh, is much more meaningful than we ever imagined. And, you know, and, and you kind of go back, you know, we went through SARS and we went through H1N1 and, you know, we've been through these events. Ebola certainly was another. Ebola probably was the scariest one of them all. Um, and we, we put a lot of time and effort and money into Ebola preparedness and then nothing ever materialized. Thank God for that. But still, uh, it, it's sort of a natural and I hate this, but it's kind of a natural reaction for people to just go at the end of it go, okay, well, yeah, that we dodged a bullet there. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it this morning because I live here in the, in the heart of the coastal Carolina, you know, Eastern North Carolina, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And in the last three years, we've had two major hurricanes, one of which we lost power for seven days. And in the middle of those events, I'm like, I am, we are not going through another hurricane season without a whole house generator. You know, not going to happen. Number one priority in my life as soon as it's over. You know, then storm clears, power comes back on, air conditioner works, get busy. So here I am. We got another hurricane season on the horizon. And do I have that generator? No. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, we. it's unfortunate that in the, in the heat of these things, we learn so much. Um, and I'm a big, you know, Jack, your partner and I bonded big time over our, our absolute nerdism related to the space program. So I'm a big NASA nerd. And, and essentially, even an organization as safety driven and as scientifically driven as NASA experienced a similar drop in preparedness between Apollo 1, Challenger and even Columbia and that they learned the same lesson three times with those events. And, and, you know, part of that I think is related to this. I mean, I think we weren't necessarily caught off guard. Um, we weren't as prepared as we thought we were though. And, and I think hopefully what's going to happen from this is we're going to learn a lot and we're going to, not only from a, from an industry perspective and in that, you know, you know, if you think back to, you know, a lot of the challenges were related to PPE for one and ventilators and supply and people are asking, why don't we have stockpiles of these things? Well, because 20 years ago, when we went through the first round of healthcare reform in terms of cost, it became much more attractive to do just in time purchasing of supplies and, and those sorts of things. And our hospitals are built with very limited storage space. Um, storage space doesn't make money. So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons that it's, it is what it is. It's not necessarily an excuse. It just kind of, you know, not a lot of folks are aware of that. Um, but there's, you know, I'm hoping that in the future we're going to go, okay, here's this is going to happen. Um, and I can remember talking to some very bright people 10, 15 years ago, clinicians that would, that would say, you know, be ready. The pandemic's coming. 
And, you know, it was, to me, it was like, you know, this is real kind of horrifying tone, you know, be, be prepared. The pandemic's coming. And it was like, yeah, seriously. But now, you know what? <laughs> I wish right. I had listened a little bit more. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I tell, um, I used to love to read Tom Clancy back in the 80s, the 90s, um, all his, oh, yeah. his initial books. And I said to my wife just the other day, all of the books I read from Clancy in the 80s and 90s where he was foreshadowing events and it was fiction, was like, it is amazing how many of those stories have now hit home really since 9-11, you know, within the last 20 years. So I, yeah. I always knew and we always knew that he had sources within the CIA and the government. But it, so many of those books that we read as fiction, they're now true, um, which is <laughs> Yeah, I read a lot of those as well. Clancy and uh, Dale Brown was another one of my favorites back in those days. But um, it's amazing. It's actually a little scary. Is what it, it is. is. Absolutely. It is. And, you know, it's funny what triggered you were talking about. You would talk to the clinicians about the pandemic coming and kind of those tones that they use. And, and now you're in the middle of it and dealing with it and working within it. And some of it, I think, probably speaks to the human condition, especially, you know, your generator story. We hear similar issues about the ventilators and states had opportunities to buy them and they didn't, but you know, they, they put funds somewhere else. And unfortunately I think we all do that. And then it bites us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we were one of, I won't mention by name, one of our team members that, uh, uh, asked kind of out loud during one of our team calls recently, you know, what happened to all the uh, money that, emergency management money came available after Katrina, you know, we're, we were all these, we were given all these grants and actually after nine 11, I'm sorry, you know, and a lot of people were, you know, the, the theory was we were going to buy decontamination equipment and, you know, but the, a lot of that stuff either got, they bought stuff and it just sat there and rotted because it wasn't properly maintained or whatever, you know, and it's, uh, it's valid point. <laughs> right. Right. No, it, it certainly is. You mentioned, Steve, that um, you know you've been you've been getting calls from some of your clients, some of your hospitals. Has there been uh, a common theme in those calls related to COVID nineteen? Like, have you have you been able to spot any trends or recurring issues? One or two top things that come to your mind? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we've been getting calls from um, you know clients that have been around and been partners of ours since the beginning in two thousand and eight, and we've been getting calls from people that. Uh, currently clients, but, you know, thought we might be able to help them out. And we were, you know, we put out a press release saying, I don't, we don't care if you're a client or who you are, just call us. We want to help. And and we met that. Um, and there's been some really interesting ones that I'll uh, be willing to share, but the, the common themes, the, the first ones were, what do we need to do to be prepared for these patients? Um, and, and most of them were, well, we know we need to get some more negative pressure spaces. And we know we need, you know, how do we go about doing that? What are some ways to do that? And we've been able to help with a couple of those. And um, a, another common theme, and, and probably, un, unfortunately, the most common, not unfortunately, I don't know why I said unfortunately, but <laughs> we get a lot of the questions have been, hey, look, we right now our annual fire alarm test is due and we do not want to shut down air handlers to test that. Um, what's going to happen to us when the joint commission or DMV or CMS shows up. And so, you know, 
typically the answer, first of all, we totally agree with you. Don't shut your air handlers down right now. I mean, that's ridiculous to even think about. Um, and we actually had some discussions with leadership at Joint Commission. Joint Commission's basically agreed in principle with um, a, a idea which has turned into a tool that's out on our website now on our COVID landing page, which is so if you're interested in go to mslhealthcare.com and there's a big red COVID banner like on everybody else's website in the world right now. Um, and it'll take you to this tool that I'm talking about. But we created a, essentially a risk assessment tool for inf- inspection, testing and maintenance. Since you know, here's the stuff that you you know, and this is it's not we're not doing the risk assessment. This tool helps you do your own, but uh, it's intended to a help first determine with limited resources and with all the stuff going on what we you as an organization really need to do versus what can wait. Um, and then it's also intended that when you do get surveyed by one of these accrediting organizations or ultimately CMS to be able to help them understand your thought process around what you either delayed um, or in certain situations, you know, you may have skipped a couple of elevator recall tests for a couple of months because it just didn't make sense to do it during that time frame. Um, the, the Joint Commission leadership agreed that that was a good idea and in principle, and that's how they were going to survey. At least that's what we were told. Um, problem is CMS hasn't. And so, you know, if you go to our website, we kind of clearly tell you that this is what we think. And this, and we understand the joint commissions. They're going to look the other way during this period in time, and rightfully so. Um, haven't gotten that commitment from CMS. And I suspect at some point CMS is going to do something similar. Um, so you know, we've gotten a lot of calls like that. We what we've tried to do is anything that is has been a, a pattern is we've turned it into a, a kind of an FAQ or free resource, and so that uh, risk assessment is one of them. There's a uh, an ebook out there related to um, emergency management. Well, um, another thing we've done is we, we've stepped up our podcast rate quite a bit. We've got a podcast called Compliance for the Sake of the Patient that um, the first series of those was dedicated to construction risk mitigation, um, particularly infection prevention. And so uh, we, we stepped up that those a little bit because what we do from a construction risk mitigation when it comes to infection prevention, particularly is applicable in some terms towards preparing areas that would not normally support patient care or this type of patient to supporting this type of patient. So, and we wanted to get, that's, you know, you're, you obviously said, and thank you for the invitation to be here. You understand this is a good way of getting that message out to a lot of people quickly. And, you know, one of the concerns, frankly, that we had and one of the things you, if you do um, listen to the final episode right now, final, but the latest episode of um, that podcast is, you know, we've been using a lot of construction related equipment to create care environments for COVID-19 patients. Well, yeah. I personally think, and I think a lot of people think that when this is over, there's going to be this real push right away, particularly from senior leadership to get the hospital looking normal and being normal. And there's going to be a push from the contractors that have very generously donated the use of a lot of this equipment to hospitals to get their stuff back and start using it. Well, 
what do you need to know before you just walk into these spaces where there's been COVID-19 patients and you've got your, you know, uh, reusable construction partition walls and your uh, negative air machines, HEPA filter machines in these spaces, you know, what are the protocols? What should, what should you follow? What risks should you be aware of when we do that transition? Um, so, uh, th- that's been the main thing we've been doing. And we actually, it's one of the most interesting calls I got was from a friend who's actually, actually an ER doc um, that had invented a, uh, uh, essentially a plastic bubble that goes over, made Alexan and silicon. He made it in his, he's a grew up on a farm, made it in his shop. Um, but he basically set it over the patient in the ED on the gurney. It's got glove block boxes so you can, they can intubate. Essentially, it's a, a very small isolation room that that's gurney sized. Um, I thought it was brilliant. And, but it's, the question that he asked, I, I won't call him by name. The question he asked me is like, we're thinking about hooking up a shot back to this thing to make it negative. I'm like, oh, oh. No, Joe, no, 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 don't do that. Um, so, but we brainstormed that a little bit among our team because we've got folks that, you know, serve on lots of different committees and have been around infection prevention for a long time. Um, and what we ultimately decided was we didn't want to hook up any kind of vacuum cleaner to it. The, the containment itself, as long as we were good cleaning protocols was going to be uh, um, enough. And interestingly enough, they live on the outer banks of North Carolina and there's a lot of boat builders out there. Um, and uh, some of the boat builders have dedicated their CNC time to making milling these things out and are starting to distribute them around the country. So it's kind of a cool thing. So. People are in uh, uh, people are industrious when they have to be. Um, it's interesting. I was going to ask you when you brought up the construction and repurposing, you know, some of the construction protocols and equipment. I was I was going to ask you, and you just gave a great example. But I, I was going to say what what's been the most innovative or the most interesting reuse of construction materials, projects, et cetera, into a COVID-19 specific purpose. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are doing similar things. And and so, and that's essentially taking a, you know, what we would typically think of as a construction protocol and that's putting up a temporary containment barrier that creates a little bit of an anti-room space um, and then using these uh, construction air handlers with HEPA filters to create a negative pressure environment. And so a lot of people have been doing that. In fact, there was uh, there was a real shortage of those for the first few weeks when all this started because people were just buying them and renting them all over the place. And, um, you know, it's that's a bit unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, the nice thing about doing it that way is it's, you know, it's, it's temporary and you can go back in the other direction, but you also have to be very thoughtful about how you do it and how it's going to impact critical pressure relationships in other areas of the hospital. You got to be really careful about where you dump that air. Cause even though you're HEPA filtering it, you know, this virus is pretty small. Um, and so you just, you know, uh, And that, I think the fact that we have in the last, let's see, 15, 20 years been much more thoughtful in our approach to infection prevention and healthcare and differential pressure and and cleaning the air uh, has become the norm 
rather than the exception, that knowledge and that capability and the equipment that is, has gotten better and better uh, over time, I think is an unsung hero of this event. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's going to be something I think we're going to learn from too. It's like, okay, if we need to stand up a temporary unit, you know, what are, what's the best way to do it? There's been a lot of, you know, thinking on the fly and that's what happens during you know any type of serious event, you know, and, um, uh, I think was it, uh, I'm trying, I'm going to paraphrase Eisenhower right now and probably say it wrong, but, you know, he said something, you know, in terms of battle, the plans are useless, but the planning is worth everything or something like that. And, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. and I think we're seeing that right now. It's, it's, you know, the plans themselves are probably not as useful as the effort that went through to create the plans. Um, and I think what's going to happen, we're going to see after this is all said and done, a real renaissance in emergency planning that is not a response to compliance directives, but a response to, gee whiz, we need to be better. And I think that to me, that's exciting. I always, I'm a pretty much glass half full, sometimes three quarters full kind of person. And, I, and so I always look for the silver lining. And that to me, that's one of them. I mean, I think we're going to come out of this better and stronger and more efficient. And that's all, those are all good things. Do, uh, do you think that the regulatory bodies will be uh, open to that type of approach? You know, I hope so. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm always amazed at the reactions that we get sometimes from those groups. Uh, and, and I know part of it is, you know, when you deal with a government entity and the challenges associated with them making changes to their standards and you know, literally takes an act of Congress to, to, to uh, choose a new life safety code edition. And when that happens, it creates a, a litany of work on their end. And, you know, so I hope what's going to happen is they're going to go, yeah, we need to, we need to provide some flexibility. Um, and we kind of have seen that over the years and that, you know, 25 years ago, emergency management plans were expected or expected to have a specific plan for a specific event. Um, and there's still an expectation that we have some detailed plans for foreseeable specific events. Like, you know, down here, we've got great hurricane plans. We know what to do as soon as one starts rolling down the, the you know, sound. We, but And even before that. But, you know, we could have written thousands of pages on pandemic response and still went way off on this one. Um so over the years, that realization is what, you know, and it's, we just, we're emerging from the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13, right? So Jack, if you listen to this, here's your plug, buddy. You better um, be listening. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, you look at what, Apollo 13 and all of a sudden they had this ca- catastrophe and what saved those three guys and probably saved the space program certainly was the fact that they had a lot of very bright people um, that were able to make decisions quickly and change directions quickly and efficiently, um, but based on data. And and that's really what our incident command structure is all about, right? It's about having a lot of smart people working together, 
defined roles. So there's not a whole lot of duplication going on that are answering tough questions in real time with the authority to make change. And so the hospitals and the organizations, I think, that are really being successful with this, I'm sure have a very good incident command structure that's well thought out, that's working like a fine oiled machine. And if those that are struggling, probably that's going to be an area of focus for them on, you know, going forward to improve that. Steve, final question. You had mentioned a little bit earlier, um, talking about coming out on the other side. And of course we will at some point. Um, And you also mentioned that perhaps, you know, hospital leadership with a a focus on aesthetics and and kind of, um, you know, getting back to some of that construction, but just a question, you know, as you're planning, uh, as you're planning or as you're thinking ahead to a post nineteen, a post COVID nineteen era, era. Excuse me. What types of of modifications um, do you think we'll see? And, and your aesthetic. You know, I was thinking as you're talking about the aesthetics. You know, are, are you screening people as they come into the hospital, and what does that mean, and what does that look like? I guess you know the balance of the aesthetic and uh, versus what you need to do now in this new reality. It's a long and convoluted question, but I guess what I'm asking is, is facility directors or facilities is thinking about the future, what might it look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I hadn't really thought about the screening as much, um, and but of some other impacts. But, you know, if you think about it, screening is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, I have hospitals that I know of that have had MRSA problems for years. And so they actually, as a subset of patients that are coming in for surgical services, they do an MRSA screen on them before they ever come in the door. Um, So it's not unprecedented. And, you know, in this age, I think, you know, given the severity of this illness and the fact that there are so many super carriers out there, some type of screening may be necessary and probably is necessary. And in many ways, even you know, if, if we create, and I'm not an architect or, you know, I'm an, or a process engineer that would never claim to be one. But if, if we were looking at how people enter the facility and move throughout a facility in a way that would help us make sure that we do pick up on those people that are potentially contagious so that we can give them another pathway, but still provide access to care. There's a lot of side benefits to that from a security perspective. You know, know, one of the things we've been worried about for a long time and a lot of discussion the last couple of years is workplace violence and active shooters and that sort of thing. So, you know, creating some, you know, for lack of a better term, strong points of entry for our hospitals, I think would be a positive trend uh, in the unfortunate reality of our society today. But, uh, I think that's one of the things I think, you know, if I were sitting across from one of my clients right now and actually, you know, we've had some th- video conferences with some of them, you know, uh, understanding, you know, taking a look at your facility as a whole and understanding how we can best utilize it for the next one. And, and what I mean by that is we've got units that, you know, and I try to explain this during our healthcare construction workshop program at ASHI all the time. It's like we've got spaces in our hospital that are very unique and we take care of certain types of patients there. And we, you know, in a perfect world, we'd pull them out of there and move them somewhere else. So you could have that for your renovation project, but we've got no other place in the hospital that will support that kind of patient. Um, so understanding those unique 
areas, but then thinking a little bit out of the box, it's like, okay, we've got, you know, this one med surge unit that with push comes to shove, we can throttle supply. We can put in some construction air handlers there. Uh, you know, we can take out a couple of windows and, and create a manifold. And, and you know, within 24 hours, turn that from a med charge unit into a airborne isolation ward. Um, I think sitting down and really thinking through that stuff now, and I suspect I'm preaching to the choir because I, I think everybody's probably if they haven't, they're probably already done it. Um, but putting those plans together in a way that, um, you know, and we've had lots of succession planning discussions, so I got to throw in a plug there too. But, you know, putting that on paper so that, you know, when this person is fortunate enough to retire from that position, the next person that comes along doesn't have to relearn all that stuff, I think would be some of the things they need to think about coming out of this. Um, thinking about, you know, when going back to the, risk assessment we put on our website is what are some of the things that you can prioritize and and going back to Apollo 13, you know, they started ramping down stuff they didn't need. What are those things that are not mission critical Mm -hmm. that we can, you know, ramp down right away now to give us more resources to meet the demand of whatever that might be, whether it's another pandemic, whether it's God forbid, another terrorist attack or whatever it might be. Um, those are the kinds of things I would be focusing on. Excellent. Excellent. Steve Spombrook, founding partner, MSL Healthcare Partners. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure as always. Absolutely. Be sure you check out Steve's podcast, MSL's podcast at Compliance for the Sake of the Patient. This is Peter Martin, Goslin Martin Associates. Please check us out on the web or on Facebook, goslinassociates.com. Thank you all for listening and stay safe. Have a great day.